0: If you run a company, whether it be as a first-time entrepreneur or a seasoned CEO, you face challenges every day. And for many of you, you're doing it alone. For more than 40 years, Tony Robbins has helped business owners like yourself understand how successful your business could be, the level it's at today, and how to close that gap faster with fewer costly mistakes along the way. And now he would like to underwrite the cost of a free one-to-one business strategy session from one of his top business coaches, a $600 value. In that session, you'll learn how Tony's business systems can impact your company. See, what most people don't know is that when Tony acquires or starts a company, he brings in six systems that are proven to create monumental growth, up to 300% in the first year alone. To learn more about these systems, to get business owner resources, and to claim your free session, just go to TonyRobbins.com CEO. TonyRobbins.com CEO.
1: Hey everybody, it's Tony Robbins. Listen, welcome to the Masters of Business season of the Tony Robbins Podcast, and I want to thank you all for joining me. Recently, I had the honor and the incredible opportunity to have my dear friend and my business partner, the legendary Bill Gross, speak at my Business Mastery program here in early August. Now, if you don't know Bill, Bill is the master of business. And when I say that, I'm not exaggerating. Bill has personally started from scratch, built and exited from seven companies each one from zero to over a billion dollars each. That's more than double what the greatest investor supposedly before that of all time was, which is Elon Musk. I mean, he's truly one of the greatest unicorn founders of all time. So Bill looks for those opportunities, you know, those giant big problems where things are broken and then he brainstormed technology solutions to fix them. And then he starts building a company out of it. And in these last 23 years, He's taken his little company called Idealab, a company that was one of the first incubators in the world, and he's been able to build so many companies and create so many jobs, specifically. During these two decades, Labs has started more than 150 companies, and it's created more than 10,000 jobs and more than 45 successful IPOs and acquisitions. Few tech entrepreneurs have found even one unicorn, as they call them. You know, a company started from nothing and went to a billion dollars. You know, a tech company with a market valuation of over a billion, that's what we're talking about. We say unicorn and Bill has started and exited seven of them, seven in a billion each. It still blows my mind. And what's really cool is Bill has just recently built another company called Energy Vault that I'm also a partner investor in. And it's a solution, as you'll discover in this podcast, for solving the big problem. One of the big problems is we now have renewable energy sources like solar and wind, and they're actually cheaper than petroleum now. So why aren't they distributed? Because you can't store them. So, you know, you, you you get all this electricity, solar electricity, for example, in the daytime, but the time you need it is at 7 p.m. at night and you just don't have the ability to store it. And the, the ways of storing it the, that many people are doing are so expensive or toxic with batteries. And when you discover what his strategy is the Energy Vault has done, it'll blow you away. Well, it's not only going to blow you away, it's blown away the marketplace. Uh, and, You know, this fast company, he won the 2019 World Changing Ideas Award on energy. But just a couple weeks ago, uh, we raised $110 Series B funding from SoftBank's Vision Fund so that we can continue to eliminate our dependency on fossil fuels. They see it as the future. So get this, Bill's created a new company every single day, at least five days a week over the last 20 years. Now, that's what you call being a master of business, to say the least. And not all of them are going to be great successes, but the idea for them and he pushes through those to find what are the very best they can take the highest level of impact in the world. And so part of this podcast, I wanted you to hear Bill sharing kind of his top lessons of all time as a serial entrepreneur. And then in part two, I want to make sure a couple things that we didn't cover we did in a brief interview with him as well. So you're gonna, he's going to have ideas about how to raise capital, how to pitch investors, you know, his visions for the future, and how it affects your business and your career. So I know you're going to enjoy this podcast. This is a chance to meet a brilliant man, my dear friend, my partner, Bill Gross.
2: Uh, you have talked about all the things that I've done that were successful. You didn't talk about my 60 failures. I definitely learned a lot from those failures. I'm going to try and share some best learned lessons from my entire career about those, especially with you. First, I want to tell you about my journey. Then I want to tell you the top, 40 th- top ten things that I wish someone had told me 40 years ago when I was first getting into business. And then talk to you about what I'm most passionate about right now. Well, my journey started by selling candy at the bus stop in junior high school. I had little candy bars in my old Pan Am bag that I took from my mother. I went to Savon Drugstore and bought Skittles and Bazooka and Snickers. For eight and a third cents, they were selling them three for a quarter. They were a dime. They were selling them three for a quarter. And I marked them up to a whopping nine cents at the bus stop. So I made a whopping two-thirds of a cent per bar. But I sold candy bars and I loved it. And it wasn't really buy low and sell high. It was buy not so low and sell barely a little bit higher. But I made $400 selling candy bars in junior high school. And that was really, really thrilling to me. And it was my first taste of entrepreneurship. It was quite, quite exciting. What I did with that $400 was go out and buy an old rusted shopsmith. Shopsmith was a five-in-one tool for woodworking and metalworking that I was really excited about because I had just taken wood shop in high school, junior high school, and I was really excited to make things with my hands, make things out of wood, and I bought this old shopsmith for $400, de-rusted it, rewound the motor, put it back together, and I started making things like checkerboards and lamps and carved bowls, and I even went and bought, I don't know if you remember this, back in the days of dial telephones, you couldn't even own your own phone back then. AT&T had a monopoly on the phones. You had to rent your phone, so you couldn't buy one. But on the used marketplace for broken phones, I could go buy old phones, rip them apart, take the innards out, polish up the bells, and put them inside these little plexiglass boxes and sell them for $49. And I used to go to the swap meet at the Rose Bowl swap meet near where I lived in Southern California to sell these. And I love doing this. I love the, the idea of taking parts and re-manipulating them and making them more valuable. One of the basic tenets of entrepreneurship is trying to add value, and I was doing that in my own little way as a young teenager in Southern California. Then I grew up to be 15 years old in 1973 during the huge energy crisis. I don't know how many of you remember this, but there were long lines of cars just to buy rationed gasoline. You could only buy five dollars of gasoline per day Based on the last digit of your license plate on odd or even day, number days based on the calendar. And I lived in, in Studio City, and here on Ventura Boulevard, there were long lines a mile long just to get your $5 ration of gasoline. And I saw this, and I thought, this is ridiculous. The idea that somewhere in the world we're digging oil out of the ground and rationing it to make our lives more, just a little bit more comfortable, and yet we have a lock on this. There's got to be another way to power our planet. So that got me early interested in renewable energy. I started reading everything I could about that. I went to the library and read about solar energy. I read about wind power. I read about sterling engines, these magical devices that could convert heat to electricity. And I started making kits and plans for them. It was really my first real company, Solar Devices. I started this little mail order business when I was 15, And I made these kits and plans that I sold in the back of Popular Science magazine. Little kits to make solar parabolic concentrators and little sterling engines. But the thing I really learned from this was about mail order. Mail order was the big thing back then. And I read every book I could at the library about mail order. And one of the tenets that they said over and over again, which is a very powerful lesson even to today, is test, test, test. Test everything. Try little variations. Test and learn. Make some small change, see what happens. And I tested everything. I tested the size of my ads. I tested the wording of my ads. I tested the color of the envelopes I sent back out. I tested the style of handwriting. I used to calligraphy some of the envelopes and handprint some of the others and typewrite some of the others. I tried everything just to try and get the best performance. And I saw huge differences just keeping little track of things on a little paper spreadsheet about what worked and what didn't. And that instilled a very early training for me of testing every variable, really, really valuable for me even to today. So Solar Devices led me to college. I, I, I put this on my college application. I had made enough money. I sold 10,000 kits and plans at $4 each, so it actually paid my way through the first few years of college. It probably even got me accepted to college because I wrote about that on my application. But then in college, I got bitten by the, the audiophile bug because there was some senior in my dorm that had these incredible speakers that I couldn't afford. But there was a student shop on campus, and I knew woodworking, and someone said, why don't you go use a student shop? You can build your own speakers. So I started learning how to make speakers, and I started making them for friends on campus, and making them for all the professors on campus, and started selling them in the Pasadena area, and I made a whole business making these high-end audio loudspeakers. And school even helped me get a patent on one of my speaker designs back then, and that helped me really grow my business. I took a year off between my junior, my sophomore and junior year, to make enough money to pay for my junior and senior year, and this... Little's business, called GNP Loudspeakers for Gross National Products, was the business that I used to pretty much make my way all the way through college until I graduated. The exact month that I graduated in 1981 was the month that the IBM PC came out. I went down to my Computerland store in Pasadena and got a First PC, this PC for $5,000 had two floppy drives, a green monochrome monitor with 80 characters by 25, no hard disk. Hard disk hadn't even been invented yet. Uh, and, And I really was so excited just to get a PC to begin to computerize my business. I wanted to make better loudspeakers, I wanted to keep track of my accounting, all my bookkeeping, keep track of all my orders, and I was really excited what the PC could bring. And I remember getting that first one and how exciting it was, even though it was pretty unpowerful back then. I started writing some software to put accounting practices into my business and we called it CPA Plus. And then I started using Lotus 123 when it came out, which was really exciting. Visicalc was the first spreadsheet, but then Lotus really took off on the IBM platform, and I made a natural language program to make it easier to use Lotus 123. So I started a separate business upstairs from my speaker business where we sold the software. I came to Las Vegas at the Comdex show in 1984 and someone from Lotus saw it and took it back and said, you should take a look at this company. We heard from the CEO of Lotus, we flew out to Boston and showed it to them, and they acquired our company for $10 million. It was unbelievable, really, really unbelievable. So that was my first real success at intellectual property. The previous business, I told you, I was working with my hands. This was my first chance at really working with my mind, really trying to take ideas and turn ideas into more value. And that was intoxicating. That was so exciting to do that. To be able to use your brain power to take something of value X and turn it into value Y of even more was really, really exciting and is the foundation, pretty much, of all entrepreneurship. So I got my first taste of that. I moved to Boston to work for Lotus. It was very, very exciting. Lotus was the biggest software company in the world at that time, even bigger than Microsoft. Actually, Microsoft wasn't even public yet at that time. Lotus was one of the first billion-dollar software companies. I learned everything about the software business there. I signed a one-year contract, but I stayed there for six and a half years. I loved it there. I learned so much from Lotus, and I probably would have never left had my son not started kindergarten. In 1991, my youngest son, five years old, uh, at the time, I dropped him off on the playground I don't know if you remember this with your children, but I remember waving goodbye to him on the playground and just thinking, wow, I'm turning him over to the school system. I wonder if he will fall in love with learning like I did. I had that magical fourth grade teacher. I wonder who's his teacher that will inspire him. I hope he has that. But I thought, maybe software can do that. There was educational software at that time, but it was all skill and drill software. It was all practice. It was all learn math problems faster or read a rabbit, learn the basics of syllables and pronunciation, but there was nothing to make you fall in love with learning, and that's what I wanted to do. So I left Lotus and started a company called Knowledge Venture in 1991, and we really had this dream of really having aha moments go on in, tr- in children's mind. In particular, I wanted to do it for my son David, but I wanted to do it for all children of his generation. So we started Knowledge Venture, we made a whole range of products. We made Space Adventure and Science Adventure, we actually worked with Buzz Aldrin on Space Adventure. We made Science Adventure with Isaac Asimov, we made 3D Body Adventure, we made Dinosaur Adventure, we made all these products. We were having some success, it was very challenging. I'm going to tell you a very challenging story we had a little bit later a Knowledge Venture as, as one of my lessons. But we grew this business to be the number three educational software company, right behind Broderbund and Learning Company. And we sold the company for 90 million dollars in 1995. Really, really fantastic experience taking something that I was so passionate about that I I wasn't even doing it to, to build an exit. I was doing it because I cared about my son, I cared about his generation, and it just led to something that was very, very successful. In 1995, right when I sold Knowledge Venture, Netscape had its IPO. And it was a really magical moment for many people. It was a really magical moment for me showing the power of the internet in the following way. There were 30 million global internet users. Now, it sounds funny to hear that number now, it sounds so small. But 30 million sounded so large to me back then. 30 million users that you could communicate with directly. And I'll tell you why I was so excited about that. At Knowledge Adventure, we made products. We would take the products after months of working on them and send them to Sony to duplicate the CD-ROMs. Sony would duplicate 10,000 CD-ROMs. We would then take them and send them to distributors. Distributors would then try and get them into stores. Egghead, CompUSA, all the uh, fries, all the different stores that sold CD-ROM software. There were months and months between when we made a product and finished it, and when we finally heard back from a customer. And very few customers we heard back from. We had to go put bribery inside the box to get people to contact us. We'd have business reply cards in there. We had postage stamps on there. I even tested, again, back to my test, test, test. We tested different stamps, like love stamps worked a little bit better than American flag stamps to get people to send back their registration cards. It was, but still, we only got 2% back. So 98% of our customers never talked to us. Here with the internet, you could talk to every one of them. There was no one in between us anymore and our customer. It was one-to-one. I was so excited about that. And I had all these different ideas for businesses I wanted to start, but no way to do all of them. And that's what led me to think of starting Idealab. I wasn't sure it would work. I wanted to start something where we could have a technology incubator where we could take all these ideas and maybe run them in parallel. As opposed to being a serial entrepreneur, I wanted to be a parallel entrepreneur and try multiple things under one roof with shared resources and try and bring best practices to all of this. Mostly, I wanted to unlock human potential. I learned something at both the companies I started earlier, which was giving large equity stakes to employees and partners in the company really unlocked human potential. Think about in each of your businesses, as you as an owner, how you think about things differently than as an employee would think. Well, even if someone has 1% of the company, they begin thinking like an owner. I really wanted to start an enterprise where many companies could each give lots and lots of people 1% of a company. And that would unlock a whole bunch of potential because everybody would be thinking like owners. So that was my premise in starting Idealab. I didn't know if it was going to work. I had my first 12 ideas. We wanted to take a look at problems in the world and look for technological solutions to fix them. And the very first 12 ideas, some of them were going to work, some of them were not. I didn't know which were which. But our first ideas were answers.com, eToys, shopping.com, citysearch.com, Tickets.com, cooking.com, a whole bunch of e commerce companies because I thought we could make e commerce so much more effective by talking to people directly. Citysearch.com, we wanted to make the first yellow pages online. Idea Market, we wanted to make a place where people could share ideas online. Visual Planet, we wanted to, early, early on, we wanted to do something maybe like Street View, way back when, way too early. Each of these companies we were going to fund with the first $250,000 build a team around each of them, and then help them raise additional capital, maybe another half a million to a million dollars, to run for their first year. Well, of these first 12, only seven were able to raise additional money. But seven were able to raise additional money. So five of them went out of business in the first year just because we couldn't come up with a story that was strong enough to help them raise additional money beyond our first $250,000. But of those seven, many of them went on to greatness. We took those first ideas, we then have grown that into an organization, that has built more than 150 over the last years. And as you've heard, we've helped the companies raise a lot of capital across that time. I'm probably most proud of the fact that we created 10,000 jobs and the change we've made to society. Because every company you start out with, you want to try and make some change to the world. You want to try and make something come into existence that wouldn't have happened without you. And that's what we're most excited about. I want to tell you about a few of the companies, but mostly I want to tell you about my lessons learned, some of them painful lessons learned that hopefully can help you. If even one of those lessons you can put to use in your business or your idea, either in your existing business or to help you start a business, that will make me so gratified that the painful lessons I learned can be used again by you to make the world a better place. One of our companies, Evolution Robotics, I had a dream in 2001 of building the first robot operating system. I saw a bunch of things converging. I saw Wi-Fi coming into place. I saw sensors getting cheaper, cameras were getting cheaper, computing power was getting cheaper. I thought that's going to enable mass-market robotics. We were way too early with the idea for a robot operating system. There were not enough robots out there to need a robot operating system, but we started with that premise, and as we learned that that wasn't going to work, we pivoted to making indoor robots that could navigate on their own, localize, do path planning, find their charging station, automatically move and we built that into floor cleaners that eventually was acquired by iRobot. They wanted the technology that we had developed to do indoor navigation, and now they put that inside of their indoor robots. We had built one robot to do that, we sold 25 million dollars worth of it at Target, and then iRobot acquired the company. So my initial dream had to pivot, because we were way too early with the idea for a robot operating system. I'll talk a little bit more about timing and how important that is later. Another company we started in 2008 was a company called Aptera, I wanted to make a super streamlined electric vehicle. I wanted to make the most streamlined, most aerodynamic vehicle on the road to try and save fuel. Going back to my early idea, my, my early passion that I told you about of trying to make the planet more renewable, I really wanted to do this. We were able to build a prototype car, use that car to raise $5 million, then we used multiple prototypes to raise $20 million. We had 4,000 pre-orders of the vehicle for $25,000 each, so we had $100 million in pre-orders and then the wild recession hit. It just crushed us. We were not able to get DOE financing. We needed a $150 million loan to be able to build the factory to make the vehicles, and all of that dried up. No appetite for lending money to build factories, possible at all, after that crash. So we had to close the company. Really, really unfortunate, very, very bad timing, but something that I dreamed about greatly, and it still was so great to be able to take it as far as we did and give it that try. Another company we started in 2002, we saw digital cameras taking off, and we thought that the software that came with the cameras was awful, and that people would want a better way to manage their photos. So we started a company called Picasa, and this company grew to be the leader in photo management, and then Google acquired this company in 2004, right before they went public. And they actually forced us, probably against our will, to take pre-IPO stock, which turned out to be the greatest thing that ever happened to us. But uh, it was really fortunate that Google took that product. The only reason we sold it to Google was they promised that they were going to keep that product going along. We, We were afraid they were acquiring it just to shut it down, not to have a competitor, but they promised they would keep it going and they did, which is incredible. They kept it going all the way through and even turned it into Google Photos now. So we're so excited that Google kept that commitment and it was a really, really great opportunity to have an impact on photo management. I started a company called eSolar to try and bring concentrated solar and automated tracking mirrors, computer controlled mirrors to make high temperatures. I'll talk to you more about that later. And you heard about this company, GoTo, We started this company in 1998, and it really really came about because of our own internal need in our companies. All of our companies were trying to buy traffic. This speaks to how important it is to solve a real pain point in the world that you see. And I saw this one greatly, maybe before other people did. But we had about 20 companies at the time, and all of them were trying to buy traffic to their websites. And all of them were buying banner ads. That was the way you bought traffic to your websites back then. And banner ads were really, really inefficient, really ineffective, you couldn't track how well they worked, and all you cared about was how much were you paying to get a visitor to come to your site. Well, I would always ask our CEOs, whenever they bought banner ads, like you could go to AOL back then and pay $3 million for a two-year uh, privilege of being featured in their gardening section, for example. But they didn't tell you anything about how much traffic they were gonna give you, anything about their performance, and I thought that was ridiculous. The whole thing about the internet would be, you can track things. You should pay for performance. Why should you be paying for advertising like you do in a magazine when you can actually track the clicks? So we had this idea of pay-per-click. What about if you made a search engine, where instead of just paying for impressions, you actually paid only on the clicks that came into you. And what about if you could bid on keywords? And what about if there was an auction on every keyword? Well, that idea was actually despised at the time when we came out with it. People really, really hated that idea. But I really felt that was the way things will go. I really thought that was very important for our own companies, but I thought it was really fixing a bad problem that the internet could uniquely solve. So that led us to start that company, we raised the initial capital for it, but well, we put in the initial capital, we raised some additional capital for it. The revenues took off like crazy. The company had an IPO in almost a year and a half, you know, very, very fast, because the growth was so fast. And then eventually, the company was acquired by Yahoo for 1.6 billion in 2003, and the patents for it were acquired by Google for 360 million dollars, because they infringed on those. I had thought at the time, 360 million dollars for those patents, it was the highest IP sale, I think, in history at that time. But it was actually worth $100 billion. So they got the bargain of all time. And I'm so happy, though, that that lives on in powering so much of the monetization of the Internet. We're so proud to have had a part in that. And it was a very, very exciting example of going sort of against the grain. And I'll talk about that in some of my lessons. Okay, so what are my top 10 lessons learned? I'm going to tell you 10 lessons. And I hope if even one of these is useful to you, it will make a big, big difference for you. These are things I wish someone had pulled me aside 40 years ago and told me. Okay, the very first one on ideas. GoTo was an example of that. You need to find, I believe, a contrarian idea that's true. So Peter Thiel says the following thing. Tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. If He asked this question during interviews. What do you know that's true but that other people don't believe yet? That is so valuable if you have that insight. That insight is very important. Ray Dalio, the incredible investor, says... The consensus is already priced in, so to be a great investor or inventor, you have to bet against the consensus and be right. Well, it's very easy to bet against the consensus and be wrong, you could just do something stupid, an outlier, and it'll be wrong. You need to try and find a way to bet against the consensus and be right. So what I really urge people to do, what I try and do with all the ideas that we have when we evaluate whether we're going forward, because we have way more ideas than we could do, is really try and figure out, do we have some insight that we know is true that other people don't know yet. And you really have to dig deep to figure out if you have that. But that is one of the biggest ingredients of having a successful idea. It's not just having an idea that no one's done before. It's not just having a slightly better way of doing something that someone else is already doing. But Tony talked about that earlier too, about some of the insights of Starbucks and Subway and others. The insight that they had that people didn't think was true but they knew would be true and they carried it forward. So I think that's a really important way to evaluate the idea that you're doing and the new ideas that you come up with. The second thing, timing. I never really realized how important timing was. I always thought, just come up with an idea and blitz and just go as fast as you can and do it. But in fact, timing matters a great, great deal and here's why. There are things that are outside of your control. We'll take the example that I gave of Aptera, our company that failed because the timing was bad for getting a DOE loan. Well, that was something we couldn't control. Now that was also something maybe we couldn't predict. So things like that are gonna happen. Unpredictable things for sure will happen. But there are many predictable things that you can see happening that you can avoid by looking at timing closely. But here's why timing is so hard. When you're coming up with a new idea, if it's truly a contrarian idea, first it's gonna be ridiculed. People are gonna make fun of it. Then, when you start having some fraction, it's actually gonna be opposed. People are not gonna like that idea. They're gonna, they're gonna, start, they're gonna be threatened by it. So they're gonna start opposing it. And then finally, it will be accepted as self-evident. When it's accepted as self-evident, like the story with GoTo, like everybody understands paid search now, then you've won. But you have to make it through those first two stages. So your timing matters greatly for that. Another example of that, uh, we had a company called z.com. It was one of the first online entertainment companies. After our success with e-commerce companies, we felt entertainment is gonna move online immediately. And we're based in Los Angeles, Hollywood, connections, we can try and make great entertainment companies online. So Z.com, we formed the company, got a great CEO from Disney, raised $10 million. I actually personally met with Adam Sandler and Chris Rock, got them to sign on, I gave them each 10% of the company to be exclusive to us for their comedic content online. It was incredible, everything was great. The problem, no broadband connections. We only had about 10 or 15% of America with a fast connection. There was no way to even view their funny video in your browser. You had to do all these weird codecs and plugins to try and view it. This was 2001, 2002, 2003. We eventually went out of business at the end of 2003. We spent our $10 million trying to build a brand, trying to get people to watch it. The people who could watch it, loved it. But we were just way too early. The challenge is, when you, by definition, want to be ahead of your time, you don't want to be way ahead of your time. Being way too early is just as bad as being too late. In fact, probably worse. If you're a little bit late, you can catch up. If you're way too early, there's nothing you can do if those other things are out of your control. And I'll tell you what's out of our control. Broadband penetration and watching videos in your browser. A year after we went out of business, Adobe invented Flash. Six months after that, YouTube was founded, basically on Flash. All of a sudden, broadband penetration, a mere 18 months later, went from 20% to 50%. You know, we had that S-curve going along. We were just too early on that S-curve of broadband penetration. If we could have survived 18 months longer, we could have made a really, really great company. But we were so focused on getting out there, building the company, growing bigger, building a brand, we had to lay off people in waves to finally close down to a company that doesn't exist today. We were just too early. So I really say, go take a look at the things outside of your control that you need to succeed and make sure they're in place. Take Uber as an example. If Uber had come out before GPS was available on phones, it wouldn't work. Now, Uber didn't invent GPS, and Uber didn't happen only because of GPS, but that was something else that had to happen outside of their control. They couldn't put the satellites in space to do that. They couldn't make the phones to do that, but they capitalized on it. So looking at things that are happening in the world that influence your success is a really, really crucial thing that I really, really urge you to do, and I try and look out with all our companies. It's not easy, it's not easy to do. And like I said, it's better to be Uh, 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 to last long enough till the timing is right. And what that means is conserve your cash. Try and survive longer. If you see the timing is coming, if the curve is moving and you're just too early, just make it long enough till it gets there. Number three, don't be dilution sensitive. Okay, so I told you, we put in the first $250,000 in the companies and then we help the CEOs raise additional capital. Well, just like me, just like all our CEOs, we always want to get the most amount of money for the highest valuation, lowest dilution but it's not worthwhile to overlook, over-optimize that. Getting high equity participation for your employees and your investors is a very good thing. You want everybody aligned. You want to choose the best investor, not the one who gives you the highest price. I really, really can't say this strongly enough. Even still, after doing this 150 times, my urge is to still go for a higher valuation but I forced myself to go for the best investor and best partner and not go for the absolute highest valuation. And then more importantly, motivate your staff by sharing equity and upside. It's amazing how powerful that is. It's amazing how good that will make you feel, but forget about that. It's amazing how better that will optimize your results to have other people share in the upside that everybody is in it together. It really, really works. It's something I've learned very, very, uh, took a long time until I realized that. I wish someone had told that to me 40 years ago.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Masters of Business season of the Tony Robbins Podcast. We hope you enjoyed part one of this episode with entrepreneur Bill Gross, where he shared three of the lessons he's learned over several decades, founding, growing, and selling companies worth more than a billion dollars each. What you just heard was recorded just last month at Business Mastery, where Bill went on to share seven more lessons with the audience, lessons that have shaped him into the legendary business owner he is today. To learn more about Tony Robbins Business Mastery and how an experience like this can help you transform your own business and career, go to www.tonyrobbins.com slash Now, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, now is the time to do so. Because next up, we have part two of the episode where you'll hear Tony ask Bill questions about his top strategies for success as a business owner, including how to raise capital, the best ways to incentivize employees for performance, and his vision for the future. If you're a business owner or an investor looking for future trends, you'll want to hear what he has to say. The Tony Robbins Podcast is a collection of interviews and stories and is produced by the Tony Robbins team. Copyright Robbins Research International.